0: Revelation, chapter number three, in your Bible, the last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation. We have been taking just a few moments on a Wednesday night to be challenged by one of the seven churches that are mentioned here in chapters two and three of the book of the Revelation. I've enjoyed rehearsing in my own heart in my mind about these particular uh, churches of Asia Minor and, uh, of course, modern-day Turkey. As we look at the book of Revelation, just a quick reminder. The book of Revelation is uh, sectioned in, uh, in really three main categories. When God asked John to write this, it was uh, 30 years after uh, the church at Ephesus was started or Paul had already passed on by this time 30 years ago. So really all of these seven churches that he wrote to are second generation churches. They're people who their dad and mom got saved through missionary works of the Apostle Paul primarily and others outside of his training there in the school of Tyrannus. And now they have got another generation here. And, of course, our church is 136 years old, multi-generational in that way. But these guys are second generation. Their parents got saved out of heathenism, and now they're in the second uh, maybe 30 years of their existence. But um, there are some challenges going on. And, uh, but when he wrote the book of the Revelation, he said, John, I want you to write of the things that were. And chapter 1 is about him, about Jesus. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning of the end. It speaks about him being the lamb that was slain. Uh, it speaks about Jesus. Chapter 2, he speaks about the things that are. And that, I believe, is the seven churches that are mentioned in chapters 2 and 3. And then chapters 4, verses 1 and 2 uh, and going forward are things that shall be hereafter. Those are things that are futuristic in, in uh, the Scriptures. I believe everything from chapter 4, verse 2, to the end of the book of the Revelation is all things that are going to happen in time to come and who haven't happened yet. However, uh, the things that are are seven churches. Now, they're letters that you're reading someone else's mail when you read them. Um I wouldn't suggest you do that at home, but I, I, can, I guess we can do it here. We're reading a letter that Jesus wanted these seven churches to hear. I think the churches represent, of course, there are people who have uh, tried to come up with a theory that this really is just showing the church age from the early uh, days all the way till now. We're in the of seeing age, which I really can see some logic in that. But I think all Scripture is given... Uh, is inspired by God and is profitable for me today. It's there for application. And I think it's very wise to look at it literally as seven actual churches and with their strengths and their weaknesses. Of the seven churches, two of them do not receive a harsh rebuke. The one we're looking at tonight will receive a harsh rebuke. But the church of Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia, for the most part, God the Lord Jesus sees them. He gives them condemnation, instead of condemnation, commendation and encouragement to keep on going and being loyal in a lowly time of their existence. Five of them, beginning with Ephesus and then going to Pergamus, Thyatira, and then Sardis, and then now to the Laodicea, they all get a, stir, a, stir, a very stern rebuke from the Lord Jesus Christ. When he opens every one of the letters, he tells Jesus and he describes himself in different terms. At the end of every letter, he says, he that have ears to hear, let him hear. So he wants us to pay attention to what happens here because I think if you went to any church that was called to be a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll be in one of these seven categories. There are people that are like church at Ephesus that are churches that are, they got high standards, they, they teach the right doctrine, they're soul winning, they're hard working, but they do it without love. Love is missing. They're a loveless church. Some are churches happening today that are, they're like the church of Smyrna. There's no rebuke, but boy, are they going through a difficult time. They're experiencing great difficulty and hardship and And it's only going to be for 10 days that Jesus said, it's not going to be a long time, but right now, keep looking to me. Know that I know what you're going through and and just keep going. Keep looking to me and and you know that what you're going through and what's going against you is satanically induced. But that's okay. I got it and you you keep going through it. The church at Pergamos was really a loosey-goosey church. They had allowed the world in, the Trojan horse of the world to come in And they wanted Christianity on their terms, and the the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and and then of course infiltrating uh, worldly philosophies with Christian methods, and they just don't work that way. God doesn't like that. He says, I hate it. I want a pure church. He wants something that's pure and distinctively different from the world. The church at, at uh, Thyatira, they were allowing women preachers and he names a lady that's not really her name, but a Jezebel, somebody who has become a, a challenge to the work of the Lord there. And he tells them, you know, as, as Jezebel of old, she introduced in idolatry into the church and, and she stirred up her husband and she, uh, she persecuted the spiritual leaders of the day and hurt them. And they said that's, that's happening today also in some churches and some of the, the more challenging things to deal with. If you go to a, a prison ministry like Brother Moses is and some other, other places, sometimes it's not the, the worldly warden that gives you a problem. It's the so-called Christian chaplain that gives you a problem. And they complicate the work of God. They keep things from going fluidly because of pride and false doctrine and things of that nature and arrogance. And that they cause problems. And it happens. Then the Church of Sardis. They had a they had a sign out front. They had they had cars in the parking lot. They had a building with people in. Had a pastor. They had a name that they were alive, but they were dead as a door now. They had no impact in society. I and mean, may I just remind you that when the world gets inside the church two things happen number 1 they become irrelevant in their impact on their community number 2 they lose the next generation when we take in worldly philosophies and we we lay aside the biblical truths of God's word and just you know come as you are leave as you came and just pat everybody on the head and feel good you 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 you, you hurt Your relevancy for the gospel's sake in your community, and you will destroy the next generation. You watch churches that do that, you'll find their young people don't go off to Bible college, they don't go into the ministry. It just leaves the fire of that. They might do a little head banging on a Wednesday afternoon or Wednesday night. They might go out and sing Kumbaya around a fire, but don't, don't let us send someone off to Bible college or go to the work of the ministry. And by the way, not every child has to go to a Bible college. I understand that. I hope you understand that. But there ought to be a large portion of our young people going off into the work of the Lord. Where is God getting his servants to go to the mission field and do that? And by the way, our young people should do it. So should our middle-aged folks do that. So should some of our senior adults spend the rest of your life somewhere doing something where it matters. And not just a living life to, to feed yourself. And Jesus did not call all teenagers to serve the Lord with him. He was 33, very young. In his thing, I was amazed about that thing about the other day. In his, the way that God used him for those three years, is really is a 30-year-old man with 12 men following him. Probably only one of those was in his teenage years, and that was John. We know that to be the case. He lived, uh, he lived a lot longer. He lived longer in, into his life. But uh, some of those men were called out of the IRS, like, um, like Matthew, working for the government, collecting taxes. He called another man, Simon Cazella, who was against the government and as an adult. Some guys laid down their father's business. They, 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 they neglected their business. They said, Dad, I know you're trained to be fisherman. This is what we like. This is what I thought I would do the rest of my life, but we are going to lay down our nets. And, Dad, you're going to have to get somebody else to run this business or, or turn it in. We're going to follow Jesus. They come from different different backgrounds, and they were people who had businesses, people who had jobs, and they, they turned them in to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to do great things. And had they not done that, we wouldn't be sitting here at First Baptist Church of Hammond tonight. No, Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many, but he also, in those years of preparation for the cross, he trained 12. And if they didn't get it, you and I wouldn't have gotten it. By the way, this is why we have a discipleship program. This is why we have a Bible Institute, a Howells Anderson College, because the need is labors. And labors are chosen from people who are one to Christ, people who are discipled for Christ, and people who are trained in the work of Christ. And it always has to be that, a great church, a church that honors the Lord, and this is not the greatest church in the world, but the church that it is, and what a good church ought to be, is often just continually developing leaders developing workers for the work of the Lord. And by the way, a key to be a worker for a leader for God in the future is to be a worker for God today. And uh, you tell me, I'll forget, you show me, I'll remember, you involve me and I'll understand. People who get to do the work figure out what, good, what, what they're good at, what their spiritual gifts are. People who stop doing the work and just start watching, they become very critical and got more opinions about what ought to be done, and become armchair quarterbacks. Like the guys says, ah, oh, I can't throw the ball. Well, you can't either, fat soul. You know, you're sitting there on a, you know, with a bonbon in your hand, a Dr. Pepper, and, and you're big as a house, and you think you can throw the ball. You can't throw the ball either. Probably shouldn't have said fat soul for all the children. Please forgive me about that. But, you know, a lot of times people become extremely critical, and they're doing absolutely nothing. They haven't got behind a, wall, uh, you know, a, a steering wheel of a bus or climbed on a bus or worked a nursery or, or done anything of any significance, but boy, they have a lot of opinions about how the church ought to do some things. And boy, getting involved is hugely important with that. But inside these churches, and of course the church, the loyal church of uh, Philadelphia, and today we find that uh, we find the church that is lukewarm, the Laodicean church was lukewarm and very significant how God drives a point home to this particular church that's listed here. But not only are churches found like this, but I think in a church like this one, there are Christians that fall in those categories. In this good church, where I love this church more than any other church I've, that, that I can think of, I, I, this is my favorite place to be, these are my favorite, you're my people. And I want to be your people, and we love each other. But the truth of the matter is, some of us, we are just like the church at Ephesus. we got all the rules, all the work, and we have no love. The love has been gone a long time. Some of us, we are going through difficult times. Satan is stirred up to discourage and hurt us and challenge us, and we need to be faithful, just like the church of Smyrna. Some of us, we're loosey-goosey. We're just like the church of Pergamos. We have, we've, we've left the Trojan horse of the world and, and we're spotted up with the world. We're very, we're watching things and seeing things and spending time with people and having conversations and saying words we shouldn't say. We would have never said them years ago, but now we're just, we're just a worldly Christian. We're not keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. Others of us are going into compromise, like the church of Thyatira. Some, we have a name that we're alive, but we're not, we're, we're dead. We have no impact in other people's lives. Others are loyal to the Lord, and you're faithful, and you may not be all that uh, known in the work of the Lord, but just like the church of Philadelphia, you are a faithful, loyal people, and God commends and and, and, and encourages you. Then some of us are lukewarm, and that was the church of Laodicea. Let's look at it quickly. We've got just a few moments to look at this particular church. Let's begin, if we can, please, in uh, Revelation chapter number 3. It's very hard to find the church of Laodicea in chapter 7 for me here, so I need to get back here. Look at verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodicean. Kind of very interesting. Every other church, it says, unto the angel in the city of Thyatira, or in Smyrna, or in Ephesus. What does it say here? Of. The church of the Laodiceans. Kind of interesting. Laodicean means people's rights. And uh, they had really adapted. They weren't just a church in Hammond. They were a church living like the Hammonders. They weren't just a church in uh, Thyatira or in Ephesus. They were were of the Laodiceans. It wasn't just a, they weren't in in the city. The city was in them. It's kind of interesting, Of all, and, and I don't, I'm not sure exactly all the meaning of that, but he says, he didn't say in the city of the, like he said, he said no, now the church of, of the Laodiceans. They had gotten the world's philosophy in them, I think. But here he's going to tell them a little bit about that. He says, I'm talking to you, Mr. Pastor of the church of the Laodiceans. Write, write this down, John. These things saith the amen. By the way, when we say amen, usually it's like we agree with it, end of the story, right? When Jesus finished praying, he said amen. Now be glory in the church both now and forever. Amen. He said now it's, the period's been put on. It's the final say. Jesus has the fi- final say. By the way, he will have the final say one day. And he says, he refers to him as the amen. He's the one who, what his say, what his uh, He says, matters. And the the faithful and true witness, that's who Jesus is. He's the beginning of the creation of God. He wasn't created by God, but he was there from the beginning. Now, verse 15, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Just a few just a couple of things here that might help us if we understood about the, the city of Laodicea. Now, whenever you read the book of Colossians, it's in Colossae, and it's written, he said, I want you, this, this letter to also be read to the Christians at Laodicea and Hierapolis. These are two cities. Each of them had their own water source with the exception of Laodicea. Hierapolis, which means hot water. It, has, it was hot water, if you could make the, make the, it had a hot springs coming out of it. And that was where the water source would go to Laodicea. Colossae had a cold water spring. It, was, it had its own water spring, but it was cold water. But they got most of their water from Hierapolis, from what I understand in my study, and, and the, higher, the Hierapolis, but it was so hot, you probably couldn't hardly even touch it when it came out of the spring. How many you ever been to a hot springs and realized how hot it was? Linda and I were driving one day on vacation, and we were going up the Salmon River up in Idaho, and all of a sudden, we saw smoke coming out of the hill I, up the up away. I said, I said, something's on fire. She goes, no, I don't think it, I think that's a spring, John. And sure enough, we saw the, saw the hot water coming out of there, and it went into the Salmon River. And down the bottom that Salmon River was cold, uh, snow melt coming out of the out of the mountains. And then this hot water was coming down in there, and someone had taken some big rocks and made a natural whirlpool. There was no one there, so we got in there. <laughs> and uh, But before the, you tried to touch that water up above that, that road, or even when it's was coming, you, you'd burn your skull yourself. It was so hot. But it hit that cold water coming out of the mountains, and it was just—it a beautiful thing. We had more fun than barrel monkeys. But that's not the sermon right now. I'm just, just telling you a story. But Hierapolis, of course, it had the hot waters, and would come down, and it would feed into the Laodicean. Now, most of us, there may be a few weirdos in the, in the, in the group, but most of us, we like our water either hot or cold. When you come in from mowing your grass on a hot day, you don't say, give me some lukewarm water, honey. No, you say, give me some water with some ice it. I need some hot, I need some cold water because it just refreshes you so much. I like coffee. I don't know why you'd want to put hot water on tea. It doesn't make sense to me. I think just coffee would be a good idea. But I like coffee. But if I want to have my coffee, I want, I want hot coffee. And I know sometimes I drink it kind of hot, and I don't drink it all, and I get distracted and I have to come back and drink it lukewarm. It's like, ah. I want to go back, and I come into the church, sometimes. I go go get hot coffee, and I'll come in, and I'll go to staff meeting. I'll get ready to get, go to the radio station. My coffee is, is not hot. And Brother Tim Harrell, bless his heart, he'll go heat it up for me and run it up to the, to, to the studio. Oh, that's good. It's hot coffee. I like it either hot or I like it cold. But I don't really like too many things lukewarm. And, um, and they didn't like it. They didn't like the water in Laodicea. They didn't care for it because they too would rather have the cold waters out of Colossae or the hot waters out of, out of Hierapolis than to have the lukewarm water they had. They didn't like it, but they just lived with it. And that's what, they, what God used that illustration to tell them about how he felt. I don't like it, but you want me to live with it. You're not hot, you're not cold, you're not all the way over here like I hate God, and you're not over here where you're on fire for God. You just offer him something he really doesn't like, and you just tell him to live with it. Well, all of us have been in there sometimes, haven't we? We are not excited about the bus ministry like we should. We don't get excited about things that happen. We're not really passionate about soul winning. Don't keep gospel tracts as Brother Micah challenged. We just kind of, you know, we're, but we're not going to hell and we are going to give our tithe on Sunday. And I'll be ready with my Sunday school lesson. And I'll be in my seat. We're not on fire and we're not, we're not an atheist. But we're just lukewarm and saying, God, I know you don't like it, but you've got to get used to it. That's how they had their water. And every Laodicean understood that. They didn't like it lukewarm, but they just had to live with it. And they took their service, and they may gave it back to God that way. He said, Lord, I know you don't like me like this, but you got to live with it. Would to God that all of us, and he said, you know what? It just makes me sick. Oftentimes, they'll give someone, you want to you purge yourself from something that's sick, in your are to give you some lukewarm salt water or something of that nature makes you sick. So that's, that's kind of how I feel when you give me mediocre care and service and, and then just want me to live with it when I've given so much to you. Uh, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the, that you present your your lives, what, a living, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You think it's reasonable for someone who would die for us, for us just to mediocrely give him our best and say, or give him our casual, or casual attendance or our, our nod and expect him to like it? He goes, I don't like it. You want me to live with it? It's the way it is, and you want me to live with it, but I don't really care for that. That's kind of what I feel like he's probably telling the church of Laodicea. Let's continue on, can we please? The Bible says, verse number uh, 17, Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increase with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest thou not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Just a little bit of background here. The, church, the, the place of Laodicea was known for their wealth. Uh, they were known negatively for their water, but they were known for their wealth, their textiles, especially black wool, from what I understand. And then they were known for their eye salve. People who had eye issues would oftentimes come there and they would be able to give them a balm for their eyes. And he uses that same analogy to say to them, yeah, you think that you're covered in your textiles, but you're really naked. You think that you can see, but you're really blind. You think that you're wealthy, but you're really poor. You're just going through the motions. Boy, I tell you, as I read this today, and as I prepared for this over the last week, think, boy, I tell you, what, I don't want to be in this situation. But, but he just, he kind of gives them... He introduces himself as Christ and he tells them uh, his challenge to them about the lukewarm. And then he says to them, your condition is not all you think it is. You look like a good church. You think that you're clothed. You think that you've got good vision. You, you think that you can see everything the way it is. And you think that you're wealthy, but really you're poor, you're naked, and you're blind. That's what he says to this church. And then he gives them his Advice. Look, if you would please, at the next verse, if you would. Verse number 18. I counsel thee. Isn't it wonderful? You know, when God gives you counsel, what, you know, when you go get counsel, you have a choice. You can accept it or reject it. One of the frustrations, sometimes people say, What do you think I should do? I say, Well, I, I oftentimes are not very emphatic because I don't know for sure. But if I do know something, I'll say, You know, I don't, I don't think it'd be the wisest thing. Then to watch the person walk out and say, Well, thank you for your advice and go do exactly opposite what I thought they should do. And that happens sometimes. But here God says, I want to give you my, I'm going to counsel you to do something. What's his counsel to this lukewarm think they've got it all going on, but they really don't have it all going on? What's his, what's his counsel to this church? Would you look if you would please? I counsel thee, number one, to buy of who? Me, gold tried in the fire. I want you to make an eternal investment. I want you to set your focus on eternity. He said, buy of me gold that's been tried in a fire. Then he says that thou mayest be what? Rich, because I'd like for you to be rich. You know, Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He's interested in you. Apostle Paul, when he was teaching about faith-promised missions to giving to the project of taking back money to the hurting saints of Jerusalem, he said, herein I give you my advice. For this is expedient for who? You. This will help you. Jesus has you at heart. Every once in a while we think that we're giving so Jesus can have more. Listen, Spanky, he never needed us. You can keep your big bucks and he's not going to get nervous one bit. He won't get a headache. He's not going to start shaking in his boots because all of a sudden you decided you want to do something different. No, no, he doesn't need us. We need him. But he's so loving, he has our best interest in mind. You know I love it when someone has my best interest in mind. Have you ever felt like you had someone and they were just using and abusing you? (laughs) You felt like they just were taking advantage of you? Maybe it was worth it because you love the person, you're fine, I can do it, I can give to them. But you knew that they didn't really care about you, they just cared about what you could give them. Well, God has your best interest in mind. He said, look. Here's my advice. Stop thinking about the the nasty now and now and materialistic thing and buy gold of me so you can one day enjoy the true riches. In Luke chapter 16, he says, If a man does not handle unrighteous mammon, who will give to his trust true riches? God is interested in your eternity. And he tells him, look, if you find yourself a little lukewarm, how about this? Turn your attention to Jesus. And ask him for eternal perspectives. Look on the next one that you can be rich and white raiment. Once again, instead of the vesture of a black raiment, he said, "Get a white raiment that you may be clothed, and the shame of thy nakedness does not appear." He said, "You can get clothed, so you don't you don't uh, you don't appear nakedness, and you have a good testimony in your community. And you don't embarrass yourself or others. Now, only people who." take their clothes off and bear their skin are really the innocent and the perverted. The babies can run around naked. They don't think about it because they're innocent. Anybody beyond that runs around naked, it's because they've got some they've got some squirrely, sinful, wicked things going on. He said it's embarrassment. It's a shame. It's one of the things that Satan does. God loves the human body. He made the human body so the devil wants it to get get pierced and wants it to get tattooed and wants it to be shown and embarrassed and shamed. He say, boy, you ought to wear, wear your clothes. We wear clothes for three reasons, for protection, for modesty, and for the distinction between the sexes. God doesn't want a unisex movement. He wants a very distinct there. He wants us to clothe ourselves in modesty. And every time you put clothes on, you need to think about those three things. You wear clothes for protection. You wear it for modesty. You wear it because you're, if you're a girl, you dress like a girl. If you're a guy, you dress like a guy, and God wants it that way. Very distinct in how he, in how he does things, and I'm thankful for that. But he said, your, your nakedness, hey, put some clothes on so you don't show your, embarrass yourself and embarrass other people. Look at the next thing the Bible tells us. And anoint thy eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Verse number number 19, read out loud with me, if you would, please. And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So they are lukewarm, and he says, I want you to be zealous, and I want you to respond to reproof. Most of us, including me, I don't like to be reproved. But Jesus says, look, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. There's a difference between chastening and punitive punishment. Uh, God Chasten is always with the desire for our good and his glory. Hebrews chapter 13, or chapter 12, he says, Now no chastening that God does in our lifetime to discipline us, to reprove us, is 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 nice. It's good. It's not good. It's, it's not joyous, but it's grievous, it's miserable. But after we're chastened and we respond to God's work in our life, then he said it reveals the peaceable fruit of righteousness to everyone who gets their bottom busted who is chastened by the Lord in that way. He said, look, I love you, and the reason I'm speaking so harshly with you, the reason I'm stirring you up about your mediocrity and forcing me to, to have something I don't really like and telling me that's the way you're going to get it, the reason I'm telling you to to put your clothes on and, and uh, realize you need to look for the eternal and cover your embarrassment and get your eyes out so you can see things right, not because I hate you, I love you, And I want you to make it. I want you to be rich one day. I want you to have eternal glory. And then to finish out the chapter with verse number 20, a very popular verse. Read it with me, would you please? Behold, if any man and open the door and will sup with him. I want to just say to you real quickly, this, this story, of course, we oftentimes use it as and we're witnessing someone that God is knocking on the door of your life and he wants to come in. And the only way he'll come in is if you open the door. And that's true. The application, I understand it. It's not wrong. But here, it's Jesus knocking on the outside of his church. And he does two things. He said, knock. And he calls. If any man will hear my voice. He's doing two things. He's knocking to get our attention. And he's calling, hey, will you let me in? Can I get into my own church? I wonder how many things would change if if, uh, on a Sunday, if if God's spirit wasn't here at all. I think we probably have experienced that from time to time, where, where we just ran church our way. We lived our life our way. We did what we wanted to do without the accompaniment. And I think sometimes the Lord bangs on the outside of our heart and says, Hey, John, I, you've accepted me, but I'm getting locked out here. But if you open the door, I can come into you. and We can sup together and fellowship. There's nothing better in life than to be in right fellowship with the Lord. You'll, you'll be more effective as a soul winner by accident being in fellowship with the Lord than you will trying to read 17 books and following all the programs. And I'm for all of that. You can do. You, you'll be able to. You'll be able to do things by accident in fellowship with the Lord. He said, "You're going to have to let me in, though." You have to let me in. Boy, he's on the outside of his church asking to come in. Then the last verse we see, verse number twenty-one: "To him that overcometh, that's people that are saved, I will grant them to sit with my throne." And that's First John chapter five, verse number four: "Even as I overcame and am set down with my Father on His throne, he that hath ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." He wants us to keep. Eternity in view. Before he closes out this last one, he says, you know, if you're saved, remember that we're going to rule and reign together. Keep your eye on that. Keep eternity in view. To anyone who is saved, you'll have not only eternal life but an eternal opportunity to serve and to, to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together, can we?